Waterloo, 1815. Ugh, I do not think we will get out of this alive. It is most likely we will die. That is a very big army over there. Oh yes, let's just wake up and have our, our little cafe and then we go and we see the gigantic English army on the other side of the field. Of course! Don't be a stupid! I am just very tired. Okay? Don't be so judgmental. Marys, what do you think? Vote on to Namsdam. He's right, we're going to die. Should never have signed up for this. It's a good thing that I kept the beer on ourselves. So that we could run away? No, 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 no. See, remember, I took your bayonet away from you. Yes, I said I had a special project for it. And I combined it with my bayonet. And I have taken up crochet. It, you know, to keep warm. This is information that could have been useful during the Russian campaign. That's true. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, Marys, what do you think we should do? Do we fight or do we run? J'ai besoin de manger tes enfants pour un pamplemousse. Voulez-vous un pamplemousse? That makes a good point, you know. We're probably going to die. They're going to shoot at us anyway. We might as well go towards the side where we more likely will live. I have not finished that scarf for you yet. I really want to get it done. It's very intricate. It's got this nice little lion I put into his eye on you. Oh. So we should do that. We should okay, we, so we run, yes? Yes, we run. We run to the forest. Maurice, you here? You in? J'aime la bibliothèque. Then we do. When they say charge, we run. Why not wait for the charge? Let's go now. Okay, fine. Wait, 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 it's over there. Look, look, keep going, keep going. Is it, is it a box? It's a large blue box. It's got a door. You think we hide? Okay, we hide. Let's do it. <coughs> so clear. It is quite larger on the inside than it is on the outside. It is an ambiguous shot. Uh, crap. Um, who are they? I have no idea. Hello! Hello? Où est l'hôpital? Welcome to Nerds on History. I'm Brian Moriarty. I'm Sarah Ashley. And I am Monsieur Eric Brickmont. <laughs> Je m'appelle Eric. <laughs> Je m'appelle Eric. Hello! <laughs> <laughs> I am offending as many of these French as possible because I have French accent. So, not accent, but accent, you know. Yeah, I, yeah. I'm pretty you sure. You had a French accident? No, 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 no. No. Ascent. Ascent? You're ascending to something? No, from the French. You're, You're climbing from up from France. No, 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 no. <laughs> Making an ascent. He must be in the Alps. He's, yeah, he's clearly. God damn it. <laughs> what I'm trying to say is I have French heritage. <laughs> I said. No, you descend. Oh! <laughs> Right. Ay, mon dieu. <laughs> mon dieu. Being okay. the Frenchest person in the room, I will take all the hate mail for all You know of what, you. folks? It's after Christmas. Mm -hmm. And you know what sobers you up after Christmas? European conquest or failed European conquest. I or mean, succeeded sure. followed by failed. Yeah. Followed by succeeded followed by failed. Followed by failed. I mean, really. It's a constant pendulum of failure and success like life. I or just, the holidays. Or the holidays. I just personally really enjoy learning about egomaniacs. Yeah. <laughs> Yes, indeed. Uh, Eric, what are we talking about, sir? We are talking about a rather well-known historical figure. And that is, of course, Monsieur General First Council Emperor Napoleon Bonaparte. <laughs> yes. Great job. Uh, it's Napoleon Bonaparte, as his yes. first Buonaparte. name was. Yes. Yes, he was. If you want to put the Corsican emphasis on it. And we kind of have to, because mm -hmm. 
it's kind of important. There's a remember there was a joke about ten years ago when you would Google great French military victories. The joke was we didn't find any results. Are you sure you didn't mean great uh, French military disasters? Uh, this is just a photoshopped Google meme. Yeah. But it's funny because they, the debate of whether Napoleon was actually French. And because of, of the, the status of Corsica when he was born. Yes. Well, that and I think the internet meme was referring to the fact that the French surrendered during the Second World War. However, yeah. prior to that fact, they were kind of a force to be reckoned with. And, and they also help us helped us win the Revolutionary War. Yeah, that is true. Uh, and let us not forget the fact that Napoleon, at one part, at one point, commanded the most powerful army that Europe had ever seen. Powerful land army. True. Well, that's what I meant by army, not yeah. navy. But the most powerful army mm-hmm. they had not they had ever seen, and conquered over seventy million people, controlling yeah. the vast majority of Europe, at least. If not well, directly, Western Europe, for sure. Yeah. Well, yeah, Western Europe, but if the, if not directly, then um, certainly through his his incredible influence mm-hmm. and threat of further violence and war. So he is a very significant historical figure. Uh huh. And we uh, here at Nerds on History oftentimes delve off into other topics of history. We we take our time to get around to some of the big stuff because mm-hmm. a lot of other history podcasts solely focus on that they just focus on big thing after big thing after big thing we like the the in-between stuff Mm -hmm. but we still like to land the plane and bring it home and and what better way to celebrate december uh than the coronation month of the emperor napoleon there we go by talking of course about napoleon and let's talk about napoleon and um just so you guys know this will be a two-parter it kind of has to be it has to be because boy howdy was this a life well lived? Um, Little known fact: Boy Howdy, a <laughs> phrase coined yes by Napoleon. Yeah, of course, if we said it in French, this would be Boy Howdy, right? <laughs> but it was by Napoleon's, which is also where Boyard, Chef Boyardi, yeah, oh, got really? his name. Yeah, yeah. Uh, by his um, fake history, by his dog's personal attendant. <laughs> well, that's prestigious. Right. Yeah, <laughs> substitute personal attendant, really. Yeah. yeah. Um. So Napoleon was born. August 15th, 1769, in Ajaccio, which was in Corsica, technically France by that point, but well, Corsica had been in well, Corsica, war between Italy and France for quite some time. Yeah, yeah. Corsica at that point had, um, basically, it, it was under a treaty with, with France, and so it was kind of considered French territory, but they were relatively operating on their own, yeah. but this was after a long battle um, with France that... I mean, it went for a long time, and it actually, as Napoleon was growing up, he had a hatred for France because of it. Corsica is an interesting place. It's been around forever and a day. The Romans tried to conquer it unsuccessfully. Uh, the Moors tried to conquer it unsuccessfully. The Italians attempted every other year unsuccessfully. And it was finally the French who who beat them down at a time when Corsica was pretty much an island of between 120 and 150,000 more or less peasants. There were members who were a little bit wealthier, a little better off. They and, were they were aristocratic, and so therefore they had multiple homes, but they right. also had a bunch of kids and were dirt poor. Right, and that's exactly what you have with Patricia and Carlo Bonaparte, his parents. Bonaparte, yeah, yeah. Bonaparte, who were essentially his, well, <sighs> inspiration and hatred mixed into one, really, as many yeah. parents often are. Yeah. Right. Um, he loved his mother. Yeah. The world revolved around his mother as far as he was concerned. She was a very strong woman. Um, and 
if she were a man, she probably would have fought on the front lines against France. Right. Um, and or the very real guerrilla war that was going on yeah. at the time in right. which she was growing up. Yeah, because yeah. culturally, France or Corsica was really did have that kind of mishmash. It was it was very almost it was more Italian culturally than I would say French. Yes, very mm-hmm. much so. Yeah. And so it was very resistant to the French who were coming in, and the people were very much um, in favor of subverting this this challenge as much as possible. Right. And the leader was, of that was uh, was Pasquale Paoli. Right. Right. Who. Carlo Bonaparte was a big supporter of. Mm-hmm. Well, and Napoleon Napoleon was a big supporter of him for a while until he actually met him and got close to him. But we'll talk <laughs> about that later. Yeah. Um, but Carlo, um, you know, himself, after after um, France had defeated the Corsicans and, you know, Carlo was like, well, now it's time for survival. And he kind of took it as an opportunity and he started cozying up to some of the, the French in order to... Um, and, basically kind of get his family more ahead in, in status. Right. And so he was kind of rubbing elbows with French statesmen, and it ended up getting Napoleon his scholarship to go to a military school in France. Uh, which was uh, in uh, Brienne. Exactly. In, in northern France. Mm-hmm. Uh, a, a time when Napoleon would have a very, very transformational experience mm-hmm. so at this point napoleon uh is nine years old this is 1779 yeah already hates france already hates france a little bitter at his dad hated his father <laughs> it really comes down to his father was a was a opportunist opportunist he pretty much sucked up to the aristocracy in, in france did anything he could to make a dollar uh which ultimately served napoleon and wouldn't have put him in the place of power that he was if it wasn't for that but he would never truly acknowledge that of his father to sarah's point he adored admired and put his mother on this extremely high pedestal and kept her close throughout his time uh in control of of france and on the throne but it was this formative years where he was at the military academy that really turned him into the man that we would later know him to be being that he was corsican he spoke very little French. He had to he had to learn French more or less while he was there. He was the constant attack of bullies. Mm-hmm. He himself declared himself to be kind of an, an exile uh, and that he wanted to uh, alienate himself from the rest of the population. What this gave him was an ample opportunity to do a lot of reading and become a very studious young man mm-hmm. uh, to the point where he was obsessed with military journals and practices that had been performed in the past in terms of you know reading about former battles and learning about the the arts of war if you will uh in addition to other sciences and um philosophy law his father was a lawyer so this was something that he did have some background with uh but he spent five years secluded at this academy with no contact besides letters with his family yeah didn't go home for the holidays nothing yeah and that screws with you. I mean, yeah, from I'm, 9 to 14, that is going I mean, to screw with that you. I mean, the, the contact that you are having with your peers is mostly them picking on you. Um, and then, I mean, his contact with his, his teachers there, his mentors, they were basically saying, this guy's a loner, but he's brilliant and he's extremely ambitious. Like, they yeah. saw it from the beginning. Yeah. Um, and they said, you know... There's something about him. He's like he's kind of choosing also to be by himself because he kind of has this. Um, again, he kind of had this weird um, hatred for France, but 
it started to develop as he was learning more about military history and and um, French politics and everything like that. It started to change a little bit, and he was starting to kind of come around. Well, I think w- we should acknowledge this now because mm-hmm. it is so paramount to understanding who Napoleon was. His entire life's ambitions mm-hmm. were self-motivated. Oh, yeah. He was and quite possibly is the most selfish man to ever walk the face of the earth. You, you look at other people who became absolute rulers, right? You look at some more modern examples with like Hitler and Saddam Hussein and Franco. And then you look at to some people from the past, right? You have Alexander the Great, Augustus and what have you. Napoleon somehow falls in between these folks. He's mm-hmm. not nearly as evil as you find with with Hitler, for example. Um, but he's also not nearly as for his own country as you would find. He's not as idealistic. No, he's not nearly as idealistic as as, as the ancients who came before him. He really is simply. I'm sorry, it sounded like you just said ancient zucchini before him. <laughs> <laughs> the so, ancient zucchini before him. There is an there is an ancient French myth made popular by Nostradamus that <laughs> God. upon the rising of a young general, a zucchini would be born in the West. I am <laughs> sensing some bullshit right there. <laughs> <laughs> that was definitely bleep worthy. Anyhow, um, my, my point being is he really is out for himself and absolutely nobody else. This is what guides him forward. And life. him trying to prove something. Yeah. Yeah. He's also caught in between these ideas, like to Sarah's point, is he Corsican? Is he French now? Does it matter? Is France good for Corsica? Is it bad? All things that in the next five years, he's going to have to confront with him, himself. Mm-hmm. Um, but in um, in eighteen, or sorry, in 1779, uh, he ends up at the Royal Academy in Paris because of his performance. Yes. He has now been elevated in rank. He's a um, captain at this point, right? A uh, second lieutenant. Second lieutenant. So a second lieutenant, uh, he is now brought from the small isolated part of France into the center of wealth and prosperity and luxury and all the things that he claims that he hates so very much, mm-hmm. he's now surrounded by. And he has this choice. Does he assimilate towards this and embrace it? Or does he further alienate himself knowing that it will not allow him to progress through the ranks to where he ultimately wants to be? Well, and I think the other aspect of it, too, is that he witnessed the revolution firsthand. He witnessed the French Revolution and at... He had a hand in it. (laughs) Well, Well, not really. No, actually, in the beginnings of the revolution... Not in the beginnings, but more toward the back half. Yeah, his hand comes in more towards the reign of terror. But when you're you're looking at the initial revolution, he's observing it for... Actually, as as an observer, he is a total third party to this. Yeah. And he starts to really appreciate the ideals of the revolution of... um, equality yeah um but also kind of developing his own philosophies later on which then come out when he crowns himself emperor but <laughs> <laughs> literally literally crowns himself yeah. emperor. um but but he ends yep. up he ends up this has a huge huge influence on the idea of warfare to take what you take what's yours um to to change policy through action um and sort of that level of idealism and kind of how can he use this to his own benefit 
And if you think about it, he was already kind of doing that in his own mm-hmm. microcosm, right? In yeah. his own life, in his own world. So it made sense that he would align with these mm-hmm. ideals and these these principles. Yeah. But then again, never taking part of it. Yeah. Uh, one other very interesting aspect of Napoleon that is oftentimes overlooked mm-hmm. uh, was his proficiency as a writer. Yes. And he was um, at this time at a very young age attempting to become a novelist and, and succeeding in doing so. In fact, he actually wrote a rather detailed history of Corsica uh, in addition to several other novels, some attempts at romance, some attempts at melodrama and other things uh, that he was okay at, but not good enough to leave mm-hmm. behind a, a career in the military and, and use that to propel him forward into society. So he I be, always... I'm very fascinated to read those if they any manuscripts a, exist. There is a lot. Uh, you can read a lot of what he's written. He wrote a lot of uh, short stories and papers and things of that nature as well. Not to mention the thousands of, or maybe not thousands, but it seems like thousands of letters that he would have written to Josephine. Mm-hmm. Um, some of some pretty <laughs> raunchy stuff. And also his own biography. <laughs> well, there was <laughs> Which that, he too. wrote at the end, which, hmm, revisionist. <laughs> yeah, I wonder. We'll talk about we'll talk about Napoleon, the expert propagandist, as yeah. we move throughout this. Mm-hmm. Oh yes, but you know, 1789 did see the beginning of what would be a very long process, but the French Revolution, as we kind of sum it up as, mm-hmm. and that fracturing of that social order that had been in place for centuries was now his opportunity uh, to make a name for himself. Uh, so, at 20 years old. Uh, this very young and very impressionable Napoleon is kind of on the fence about around the revolution. He denounces mob violence. He does not see it as anything that has a place in society. Well, because it has no order. Exactly. But the elements of the revolution that he does align with would eventually become the guiding principles for the Napoleonic Code mm-hmm. and for Napoleonic law, which still is in place in France today. And because of the conquest that Napoleon performed throughout Europe is now in place in many other countries throughout Europe. It was, for many of them, their first introduction of that. Was it done the right way? Well, that's a whole other topic. But Not uh, really. Yeah. But, I mean, it's funny. He's like, yeah, equal in fairness by force. Yes. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to force you all to be and equal in fair. Yeah, exactly. And <laughs> equal in fairness for the masses, but for a select few. Yeah. And anyone who steps up against me um, will mysteriously disappear. Mm -hmm. He also had a little something called a secret police. He liked to employ them. Uh, As most dictators do. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Very few just kind of keep them around for entertainment purposes. You know, karaoke. I hear they were quite good at juggling. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Well, you got to do something with those guillotine blades when they're not being used. Uh, Anyhow, 1792 would, of course, see the dethroning of the King of France. Um, who this would be Louis the Sixteenth at this point? Yeah, and it's right around this time that Napoleon actually takes leave from the from the army. Mm-hmm. He decides at twenty three he's going to return to Corsica and give it a try. You know, he's a man now. He's made enough money as a as a young lieutenant to you know allow this leave of absence and a trip back to Corsica. And when he arrives there, uh, he is very much disenchanted with the memories of a boy. Yeah. Uh, a lot of his family are still there on the island. So certainly he has a, a very pleasant reunion with them, uh, including his mother, of course. Uh, where he does not have a pleasant reunion is with uh, Piola. Uh, am I saying that right? right? Paoli? Paoli? Paoli. Paoli. Paoli, Paoli excuse me. With pa- pa- actually, Paoli, I think. Paoli. Paoli? With Paoli, who was the, the, the ruling governor 
uh, at that time. And because of the French Revolution, Corsica had now been given full rights as a French colony. It was, all of its citizens were, were, were citizens of France now. Uh, but Paoli does not align with this. He instead wants to be separate. He wants to be free. He wants to be independent. And he's willing to fight to get it. And but, he also kind of dismisses Napoleon as kind of a foolish and idealistic kid. Yeah. He, he says something take, to that effect. Yeah. Fact. He doesn't take him seriously whatsoever. And to a young Napoleon who believes that he is destined to free Corsica in his name mm -hmm. and to keep them part of France, which is now his ideals in his mind is freeing Corsica. Uh, he takes up arms against this, this, this former mentor from afar, if you will, this former inspiration of his mm -hmm. role model, role model. Yeah. Um, and he fails miserably in doing so. Mm -hmm. uh, so very miserably that the entire family is exiled Booted. from Corsica. Yeah. Uh, forced to free back to France. Thanks, Napoleon. Yeah, really. Uh, God! <laughs> <laughs> but um, in doing so, it actually does more for his career than it ever could have. Now he returns to the army because he's got a job. So at least he can, you know, help support his family. Um but it's time for him now to to really make a name for himself. Mm -hmm. um, and it's at this point in his career uh, that he's hungry, he's eager, and he's now ready to fight. Uh, there was a lot of a lot of going ons in France at this time that were very chaotic. And in Toulon, in southern France, the entire port town had rebelled. Uh, and he was sent down as a young captain. Uh, to assist with his regiment of troops to to fight to take back the the town, he had a a, a great idea. He he had the strategy all worked out. He had been thinking about it. He it he, seemed simple at first, so yeah. some people were kind of dismissing it almost, and then they finally said, "All right, give it a shot." Right. He he had a, just all he needed was one general to listen, mm -hmm. and he ended up getting that. Uh, the flip side of that is he was expected to lead the battle. He was expected to lead his own troops at the head of, of his regiment. And he did so without any kind of hesitation um, and ended up taking the port town in a relatively short amount of time. Mm -hmm. uh, he was awarded the rank of brigadier general. And with this is his first real taste of victory and his first real belief that he was destined to greatness. Yes. Uh, you'll find depictions of Napoleon at this time. They were, of course, done later, but they were referring to this time. And you'll see the first introductions of this star mm -hmm. that is painted into his many of his depictions. His star. His star. His star of destiny, if you will. And it was uh, monographed, of course, with, his, with the letter B to represent Bonaparte. And... Um, he was so successful in the battles to come and his rise within the French army because he really, honestly, truly believed he could not be defeated. Mm -hmm. And I know that sounds kind of silly. It sounds like it defies all logic. But I believe it. I believe he really, truly succeeded when he did because he knew in his own heart he couldn't lose. Uh, and you, you see this more obviously at the end of his military career when he he believed he would lose and so he did but um it's an interesting time for him and to rise to the ranks that quickly definitely got the attention of many people uh, yeah, in France yeah he was becoming a little bit more of a also kind of a social upstart 
um, in in Paris society um, and subsequently was trying to start dating. <laughs> yeah, not too successfully not at that, Not too I'm successfully, afraid. no. Uh, because he was <laughs> kind of intense and not that attractive. <laughs> he was a little gross. Yeah. Um, he wore his hair very long and unkept. He he had kind of a, a punk rocker face. He did. He totally did. He he oftentimes wore clothing that was many days unwashed uh, or soiled. Um, perhaps not from his bowels, but from whatever he was eating, falling on him, or what have you. Yeah. He did not have the the social graces that you would expect from anyone of the rank of brigadier general at the mm-hmm. time. Um, and he didn't care. He really didn't care. Uh, he wasn't happy with it, but he didn't care. What he realized is what he was truly good at was the art of war. Mm-hmm. And he would later say that conquest is what brought him to the pinnacle of his power. And it would be conquest that would continue to propel him, you know, through life. Mm-hmm. And he, he lived by that principle up pretty much up to the very end. Oh, yeah. Minus the last five years on St. Helena. He, he really did live by this. And um, in 1797... The provisional government in France was starting to fall apart. Uh, violence was breaking out this is in the reign Paris. Of terror, yeah. yeah, and this was absolutely horrendous. What was going on? Oh, it was awful. There was an entire convent of Carmelite nuns who were beheaded yeah. because of the reign of terror. Yeah. So Napoleon, uh, a young brigadier general, is the only general in Paris. Whoa, this is going on. Everyone else is left, and he is called upon to defend the city and, and keep the government from ultimately collapsing and he does so by the rather unorthodox use of artillery his artillery yeah napoleon was an expert artilleryman and he would continue throughout even even as the emperor himself he would fire off shells from cannons i mean that's how how connected he was to this and he brought military cannon into the streets to dispel the mobs no one had ever done this before. First time that's ever been used to use cannon fire to dispel people like that. Like oh, mobs and, of people <laughs> in the streets. And did he dispel them? Oh, uh, yeah. Including dismember them, mm-hmm. uh, in which he killed uh, well over 100. Uh, and sure enough, he he proved himself that day that he was not one to be messed with. Um, this only served to further his career. More wealth, more power, more respect... And here he is, the only general who stuck around. Um, it's no surprise that he would be put in command of the army as it would march towards Italy. And that's where his next big defining moment comes. We should pause for a second, though. Mm-hmm. And we should mention, uh, because while it's easy to get caught up in all the warfare of the Napoleonic Wars, uh, we should talk a little bit about Miss Josephine. Miss Josephine, who at the time was a widow. And had a couple of kids, actually. She's 32 years old. Yeah. yeah. she's So she was an older lady. And she apparently really liked the pickup line, hey, want to see my artillery? <laughs> <laughs> I believe she is what we refer to as la cougar. <laughs> um, and actually, based on her reputation at the time, she just liked the pickup line, bonjour. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> so um, so she, she was kind of known for having several affairs um, and kind of moving from man to man at 
because honestly, that's how she was keeping her family alive. Exactly. Um, she was extremely charming. She had all the social graces, um, was popular, was lovely. People. So in other words, his perfect match. Right. Exactly. Mm. Um, and so she was, you know, she definitely was kind of making the rounds at that point. But she she was kind of the the favorite mistress of one person in particular whose name I cannot remember. Paul Bure, I believe. Thank you. Um, and it's while she's with him that Napoleon meets her and starts kind of trying to put the moves on her. And she's like, um, you're gross. Uh, hey there, creepy. No. <laughs> Pretty and much. That's when you learned, maybe I should cut my hair. <laughs> no, no. No. Didn't, didn't learn that for a while. No, he just <laughs> continued to actively pursue her. And it was when he had kind of gained enough power that she was finally like, and, and her, and her, yeah. her, her fella. He pretty much was dismissed her. her. He was like, eh, yeah. I'm over you. Well, she was 32 years old. Yeah. Which is not old by any means. But at this to, point, at this point in history to be a member of of the French ruling class and, you know, 32 and not married, you were pretty much old. Hat I mean, and you knew it. Yeah. I mean, even now, if you're a 32 year old woman, people are kind of wondering, why aren't you married yet? Right. So kind of a similar situation. <laughs> and so, yeah. So the guy that she was with was like, I, you know, I'm tired of you. And so she was out on her ass, sorry, and um, ended up being like, all right, well, I kind of have no other choice. So I guess I'm going to take up with Bonaparte here because he is upcoming and he's got a little bit of power and maybe I can ride this gravy train. So she ends up marrying him and they spend only a couple of days together. Two day honeymoon. Two day honeymoon before he gets shipped off to Italy. Apparently, he was a bit of a one-hit wonder. Um, yeah. Wasn't all the greatest of a lover. Uh, he wasn't just selfish in his personal endeavors, but apparently in the bed as well. Yeah. And this was be reported not just by Josephine early in their relationship, but by, by the many mistresses that he would carry on with mm-hmm. I'm failing later. to see his redeemable qualities. I mean, obviously, expert artillerymen, obviously, expert military strategist. Well, I wouldn't well, say expert. Well, here's the thing. The, the thing about Napoleon is he was kind of a d- Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And that's the episode I'm title. Glad you, I'm glad you finally said it. The thing is, he was kind of a dick. Yeah, he was. And that or the zucchini before him. <laughs> <laughs> the ancient zucchini He's, before him. Let's just put it this way because we don't want him to keep getting bleeped. Um, he was kind of a zucchini. Yeah, he was kind of a zucchini. Big raging zucchini. And <laughs> big raging. <laughs> but he was also he was also a brilliant strategician yeah. and warrior. And actually, civil servant, mm-hmm. and we'll get to those things as well. Yeah, because you know, as much as the the English would like to vilify him, or at least in the past, vilify him mm-hmm. uh, on the level of Hitler, I, I don't think he quite deserves that. Although he's not, he's that not great. Anyhow, yeah, but... he's he's nice middle of the road kind of emperor. Exactly, <laughs> middle of the road dictator. And I and for a redeeming quality, if you want to give this, is when he first met Josephine, he was a big sappy romantic. Oh yeah, he, he... fell. Yeah. Head over heels in love with this woman. You should read some of the stuff he wrote. With, with, I mean, and truly. And make Ron Jeremy blush. <laughs> I mean, truly, to have that kind of level of of respect for another human, yeah. really, you only saw with his mother. Not to be too gross about that, but I will say this. I find it just kind of of my own, if I may editorialize for a moment. Please do. Um, the idea of of this whole concept of conquest 
I think he kind of saw Josephine as a challenge because she rejected him so much in the beginning. Yeah. And rejected him over and over until she finally needed him. And she's like, okay, fine. But even then, she still wasn't really into no. him. And and she actually, she would read his letters out loud in those first you know, few yeah. weeks, months, whenever they were married. Mind you, they only had two days actually together at that point. Well, they had slept together before this. E- sure. But like the two day honeymoon and yeah. then she would like read his letters off to her friends and kind of laugh at him. Yeah, it was all done mockingly. She, yeah. she, she very much belittled him and then carried on with other men in his absence. Mm-hmm. Uh, that would all change eventually, however. Yes. We're getting a little bit ahead of ourselves. Mm-hmm. Did it involve artillery? <laughs> Jesus Christ, Brad. <laughs> wow. Uh, thankfully, no. So let's talk. Let's you know what? Let's talk a little bit about Austria. So we haven't talked about Austria yet. And Austria is kind of important yep it, it, it's very interesting that that paul beret who was the the um a very high up official in the in the provisional government at that time and the former lover of uh, josephine actually made all the right moves for napoleon and put him into a place of power and put him in command uh of an army to take on austria they thought hey this guy's got some guts he's clearly got some brains let's see what he can do the moment he arrives on the field, his soldiers t- do not take him seriously. He's a little skinny Corsican with a funny accent who is... Kind of sickly looking. Kind of sickly looking. He has no real reputation among the fighting men. Yeah. And let's be clear here. But with not by little, we don't mean height. He was average height. He was 5'2 in the French foot, which is like 5'6", 5'7". And that was actually... in that, that whole bit about him being small was English propaganda. Yeah, it's we'll get also to that later. a bit of a myth. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But the moment he arrives to take command, people realize he's not to be messed with, that he knows what's up. And he takes command of 38,000 soldiers who are then sent um, to fight the, the Austrians, who outnumber them two to one. I mean, this was, they definitely was not in their odds. Um, but he had an absolutely brilliant technique of moving fast, extremely fast. His soldiers could march up to 30 miles a day. A wow. day. Mm-hmm. With full, you know, battle full packs, of packs everything. everything. Yeah. Scavenging was, along the way. Yeah. That's absolutely squats. insane. And he he believed in the power of confusion. That if he could confuse his enemies, if he could cause them to be separated, if he could cause them to have doubt. If he can surprise <clears> them. Yes. Then he would win. And sure enough, he did. Within his first two weeks of taking command, he won six battles and essentially uh, eliminated the allies of the Austrians in in several decisive moves. Um, He would fight, and then he would fight, and then he would fight, Mm -hmm. and right when you expect him to just sit down and read a newspaper for a second, he'd He'd fight three more times. And he exhausted his enemies. And you would expect his troops to be exhausted as well, but they were absolutely exhilarated by this. They had been on the losing end for so long, and they had never seen a commander take charge and promise them things like Napoleon did. He'd stand before them, in regiment with them, and he would promise them wealth and glory and power, and all they had to do was follow him into the battle. Do exactly what he said, and they would get everything they wanted. He believed himself to be invincible, and by proxy, they believed themselves to be invincible. And they practically wore French casualties during Napoleon's time as general were at an all time low for the soldiers that were under his command. And I mean, with the conquests yeah. and with his success, 
he actually was paying out what they what he promised. Exactly. It was the first time that the French soldiers had been paid in forever. Yeah. <laughs> and so they were really, like you said, rejuvenated by this whole idea and and would continue to keep going. Also, at the same time, is the fact that he dressed like them. Mm-hmm. He didn't dress like an aristocrat. He dressed like a soldier. Um, he he made himself out to be one of one of the guys, and they followed through with that. Absolutely, they followed right behind him. He'd jump off his horse, mm-hmm. get behind a cannon, and lob a few shells. I mean, he would or balls at this time, but nonetheless, uh, lob a few balls at him, and and in doing so, he redeemed the the respect of his men that had been that had been lost to previous commanders. Uh, at and the, at the same time, as they're as he's confusing, you know, the generals and and officers on the other side of the army obviously um they're all kind of pissed off really that they're like what what is he doing he's not following the rules of war as we have dictated them to be he's it's kind of like the whiny child like oh you're not playing fair we are supposed to be over here in the field and (laughs) you are not doing it you're over there in that field and you're attacking us from behind stop stop it's kind of like playing chess and then you know you've decided that like that two sides isn't good enough i'm gonna attack from like six different sides yeah and exactly yeah, yeah. and you know i'm not gonna go in a diagonal shape i'm gonna do zigzags all over the whole thing <laughs> <laughs> he's like i'm much like checkers better let's merge the two together <laughs> look see i got to the other side i'm a king now <laughs> is that how it happened that's pretty much how that happened yeah um one of one of again his more decisive battles was the battle of lodi uh, where he successfully forced the Austrian army uh, into retreat, and that was that was a big deal, because in doing so, he almost immediately uh, was put in charge of French forces in Italy, which had been going on for quite some time. There was there was stalemate after stalemate, um, but in 1796, he managed to not just take northern Italy, but conquered Milan. Uh, and then installed himself as as ruling governor, uh, and again paid out his men big time, and not only that, but pillaged I don't know how many countless pieces of artwork that would be sent back to France that would one day end up in a rather popular museum. The Louvre. The Louvre. Before the Louvre was the Louvre. Exactly. <laughs> um, and this is also when he first starts to develop his absolute expert propaganda machine. Napoleon was the uh, publisher and author of the Napoleon newspaper that followed the exploits of Napoleon. (laughs) And he commissioned it to be written about his battles and his victories. He would oftentimes write articles himself. He wrote his own headlines. Wrote his own headlines, quite literally, and then sent back to France to a hungry populace who were eager to hear about French success on the battlefield. And they absolutely lapped it up. It is so fascinating because you think about the propaganda that other dictators have used. I, I immediately think about Kim, Kim Jong-il when you think, when you hear about, I can just imagine. Oh, he doesn't have a butthole because he doesn't actually poop. Exactly. Yeah, that kind of stuff. It's just like the weird thing. But not to say that Napoleon made such extravagant, you know, exaggerations. I'm sure he did, but not to the point where he bent beyond past reality. Um, I mean, the whole concept of destiny, he absolutely wrote into these papers like this guy yeah. is destined for greatness. This yep. guy is he will like he basically said he practically wrote it out for you like, hey, I'm going to be emperor someday. 
And in a certain, he didn't even take like a pseudonym. He just was like out there by, by Napoleon Bonaparte. Napoleon, yep. the best thing since sliced bread by Napoleon the Bonaparte. Pretty much. Wow. I don't know if he ever Had signed his own it officially. Bi- his own but, byline, but yeah, but he certainly wrote them, and there was no doubt, you know, at least among his inner circle, who was writing them. Eventually, he does manage to to reconsolidate his army in Italy, and then strike at Austria again. Only this time for a final and decisive blow. And in doing so, he forces the Austrians to surrender over to himself. And this is the interesting part, not the French government. Napoleon does not wait for French diplomats to arrive. He lays out the dictation of the the entire surrender. He does the whole treaty himself, yeah. Yep, writes the whole thing. And in doing so, uh, forced them to give up huge territorial claims, uh, including Belgium, and the Rhineland, and claims over northern Italy uh, that were still under contention. Uh, and he, he then brings himself back as a hero. And you know what it makes me think of? Julius Caesar. Mm-hmm. Julius Caesar did the same thing. It's probably where he got the idea from. It's almost certainly where he got the idea from. He would even he will soon even take the title that Julius Caesar had for himself. Of course, it, consul. That's right. First consul. First consul. He, he would take this title... Um, and he would later, as emperor, declare himself in the vestige of the ancient Roman emperors. Uh, so, you know, he, he was really hamming this up right now. Yes. And, uh, you know, again, it just it blows my mind. This is exactly how Julius Caesar went to Gaul. He went to Gaul with an army, trained him, raised him, made him loyal, gave him wealth, came back, took control. Slap a freaking hat on this guy and put his hand in his shirt, and there you go. You got Napoleon. It's the same it's the same thing. They almost have the same nose, too. A little bit. Based on the depictions. But here's the funny thing about Napoleon. He would oftentimes bite off far more than he could chew. <laughs> but it didn't matter because he had such an expert propaganda machine in place. Upon returning to France, however, after the Austrian and, and Italian conquests, uh, he realized that his time to move was not yet right. Yep. Things were not quite bad enough in France. He needed them to be completely and totally fractured before a hero could come in and save the day, or else he would face the same problems that Julius Caesar had when he first started taking over and and face a civil war uh, to ultimately accomplish his goals. So that's where the parallels end between these two. Instead, he makes one last parallel with Julius. And you guys know what that is? Do tell, Eric. He goes to Egypt. Hmm. So, Egypt, England, France. They all were more or less vying for control. Mm-hmm. The English and the French had been at war for God knows how how long at this point. I mean, I'm sure there's there are statistics out Over there. Over right years. But I'm not going to count because, yeah, it's ridiculous. They're on again, off again, on again, off again. Yeah. I think there's a Taylor Swift song about it. But the, <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the point is uh, that Napoleon was just waiting for something to do. And he was not the kind of man to just sit around and let things unfold. He needed to be busy. Yeah. And so what better way than to try to take, you know, the crown jewel of Africa and go in and, and steal Egypt from, from the British and from the, the Ottoman Turks. What he did not anticipate was the resistance of the Mamelukes, who were the ruling class of Egypt at this time, who had been installed by the Ottomans, who had been in place for hundreds of years, were skilled warriors and brutal warriors. Um, brutal warriors who would continue fighting uh, long and and without um, without fear of retreat. Mm-hmm. Uh, but 
initially he he did he made pretty well for himself. So he enters into Egypt with about yeah, another thirty eight thousand soldiers. So mm-hmm. he takes a whole French legion with him and, and invades. And not just an entire legion of um, soldiers, but he also takes with him some artists, some engineers, some scholars, and he kind of goes in also in a little bit more of an exploration journey. Um, so not just trying to conquer, but also trying to excavate and learn a little bit more and take down a lot of interesting information. Can we also set the record straight here? We've addressed it before, but I think it, yeah. it bears repeating. He did not take a cannon to the Sphinx and blow the nose off the Sphinx. No. Did not. And it was just decay from over time. It already lost its nose. Yeah. Yes. In fact, its scholars had drawn it without a nose at that time. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was covered up to the head in sand. Up to yeah. The so they actually, they unburied it. They did. Largely. You're welcome. Yeah. <laughs> well. They unburied it and they measured it. They yeah. were finally able to get full specs on the, on the Sphinx. They, um took down like the first recordings of certain fish in the Nile that had been, you know, considered undiscovered before. The lithographs that were gained during the Napoleonic expeditions are still being studied by Egyptologists today because they represent a history that perhaps does not still exist again, because of the Mamelukes largely and others who, Mm -hmm. who also destroyed some beautiful work in Egypt. Um, and then of course by French soldiers and English soldiers after them. But, um, the, the beginnings of Egyptology are in thanks to Napoleon. And a really, really important discovery. I, you know what? I can't be the one to say it now. You might you as well. You have to be, Eric. Come All on. All right, fine. I'll tell the story, actually, if yeah, I may. Yeah, go for so, it. So uh, it's one of my favorites. Um, some of Napoleon's soldiers were looking to reinforce and build up walls uh, near the town of Rosetta. And they, they looked out towards the desert to some ruined buildings for their their building materials. They started knocking down walls and recycling the materials. And they found embedded within a home a very large black slate with very distinctive writing in three separate sections. They found a large black slate in the town of Rosetta. What could that be? Could it be the Rosetta Stone? What? And not the software for translation. (laughs) (laughs) For teaching you languages, sorry. Wait, Napoleon knew code? Yeah. <laughs> Had a code? A <laughs> uh, very early code, yes. Uh, he wrote it on an Apple One. Um, the Rosetta Stone would later become the the catalyst to uncovering and deciphering the ancient Egyptian language. Yeah, it was, that was huge. Absolutely That's a huge, huge. discovery. Uh, of course, it was actually taken by the British and sent back to England. So but they made rubbings of it. And that yeah. was if I remember correctly, so you have Greek hieratic uh-huh. and hieroglyphics on there correct so close oh but well done brian really good job uh the form of hieratic is actually referred to as demotic and it's a it's a much later form with a heavy greek influence but well well good on you sir good on you well done uh you're 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 i'm rubbing off on you buddy i'm rubbing off on you well i did see this replica at the museum well that's true yeah <laughs> i have talked to you about it before <laughs> yes, did. Um, um i was so close so close so close it's very close the the point is that the military victory in, mm-hmm. in Egypt never happened. No. It was a flipping disaster. I think they overtook Alexandria and that was about it. Well, no, they took Cairo and Alexandria, but Alexandria was also a huge mess. Yeah. So let's well, let's talk about the one truly huge success in Egypt quickly, because it is a really important part of Napoleon's career. And this is, of course, the Battle of the Pyramids. So the... Which already has the best title ever. Totally. Uh, the French soldiers that are here are facing many thousands of Mamelukes. Let's just say, I don't have the exact number off the top of my head any longer. Many thousands of them. Uh, they're outnumbered, in fact. And the British, or sorry, the French forces, excuse me, they form up into these massive squares. And the, the Mamelukes are almost exclusively on horseback. 
uh, with with musket and sword in hand. And they are attempting to periodically flank and attack the, the French lines. But when you form these massive squares, what happens is you have gunners on the outside and then you have everyone in the middle of the square. And everyone in the middle of the square is not just playing Parcheesi, although I'm sure there's a few. They are, in <laughs> fact, reloading muskets. Mm-hmm. So they have this churning effect that happens of just constant gunfire. Yeah. And it got to the point where, you know, the, the smoke was so thick and choking that some of them were just fl- firing blindly. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they ended up killing five to 6,000 Mamelukes mm-hmm. in an absolutely bloody massacre. You know how many French soldiers died? 30. Wow. And one of them committed suicide after losing a Parcheesi match. <laughs> is that a joke or is that? Yes, that's a joke. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, you know, that first victory was huge. A few days mm-hmm. later, they march into Cairo and they take over. And, and from there, uh, Napoleon is, is set up for success. Until? A- until the British come. <laughs> Freaking British. Yeah. And they're super awesome Navy. Led by, of course, the very famous uh, Lord Horatio Nelson. Mm-hmm who destroys the French fleet at Alexandria, blasts them to smithereens. Yeah, and basically leaves Napoleon stranded. Yes. Because that was his communication home. Right. And there he is stuck without his messengers, really. So what do you do? You attack Syria. Of course, why not? Of course! He's like, well, since I'm here and we're all twiddling our thumbs, I gotta attack something. (laughs) Uh, He attacks Syria very unsuccessfully. Once again, marching his soldiers to certain death and back again. And he was losing more and more soldiers all the time. Eventually, however, he, um, he is forced to, to flee Egypt. Um, he has to because he, he gets news that uh, his chance to take control is finally here. That France is in a fragile state. There is a potential coup coming. And if he plays this just right, he can take the disaster that was the Egyptian military campaign and turn it into a propagandist's dream, which is exactly what he does. He returns home victorious, a conqueror of Egypt. He tells the story of the Battle of the Pyramids and more or less that's it. Mm-hmm. But for everything else, it's it's the, the wealth of knowledge yeah. that came from Everything Egypt. that was gained in that regard. And I think that's a great place for us to pause. Because it'll have to be. It'll have to be. Um, I felt like we were just sitting around the campfire or around the fireplace and just listening to, to Uncle Eric just like tell us a really great story. <laughs> I helped a little. You helped a little bit. No, it's true. You, Both de- are, you definitely we're did. All contributing. I did, but just you're commanding. You're a commanding orator. I'll just say that. Well, I you know I'm very passionate about certain subjects and. Um, even though Napoleon was the the cause of the death of I don't know however many brickmonts that are out there, uh, you know, I assume positive intent. Uh, he had, <laughs> he had <laughs> his heart was in the right place, uh, if even his mind was in a megalomaniacal place. Anyway, yeah, uh, we will continue the story because Indeed. we're we're almost at the point where he's going to become a much more recognizable Napoleon to most of our listeners. Um, but we'll have to save that for another time. Indeed. So let's get the feedback, shall we? We shall. This week in listener feedback. We have only one piece of feedback. Uh, and it's from, of course, our good old pal, Athena. Yay! Yay! That's worth like Yay. 10 then. Uh, she did actually made up a really good point. 
Subject nerd meetup. Listening to the backlog of nerds on film, uh. <laughs> uh, I just heard Eric's message about the nerd meetup at the Rosicrucian Museum back in February of 2013. Oh, we did that. so long ago. I know. Almost three years ago. Holy crap. It was super fun. It was. Uh, she says, I think that's a cool idea. I'm a few years late, obviously. I was wondering, do you ever think about doing something like that again? And that actually does bring up a good question because it has been three years now. We haven't... I'll, I'll be totally honest. Eric had, by that point, already been gone from the museum two or three years. Three years. And still, you knew like everything. a champ, everything. did a private tour like a boss. Yeah. <laughs> um, blew my mind. Blew my mind uh, how well. And, of course, the end, the end on the tomb. The, the tomb is just such a f- fantastic way to end the tour. Mm-hmm. I mean, you got it, right? Yeah. yeah. So It's always um, my finishing move. You know what? Let's ask the Bay Area nerds. If you want to do another meetup again... Let us know. Could be the Rosicrucian Museum. Could be another museum. Could be a part cheesy tournament. <laughs> no know? suicides, though. No suicides. No suicides. Yeah, no suicides. Uh, I would. I honestly, I would love to go back to the Egyptian Museum and, and give a tour there again. I, I still have very close ties and, and go frequently. I have a few friends who I've just anecdotally told them about what you have done for us as that tour, and they're like, "Can we do that again?" And I'm like, "I'm sure he'd be willing to." Uh, I can get six people or five people in for free, so we nice. can do that. <laughs> so first five people there, free admission. There you go. Um, there... There's three here. Oh. <laughs> well, I, I, I'm one of the six. I have, oh, okay. a, I have a family So membership. there's three more people, three lucky seats. <laughs> Maybe with Athena, two lucky seats <laughs> <laughs> that we, two of our Bay Area nerds. Who, you know, I know I would love it if it was someone who we haven't met. Yeah, and you know what? Who was written in before. It, uh, this is not it to say that anybody. there's only six people total. Like, if you guys all want to come and pay, just, you know, it's really cheap. It yeah. doesn't cost very much. It's like nine bucks for adults. If you bring a AAA card, you get like eight. So, you know, you should you should do that, and then we'll have a great big old freaking tour, and it'll be awesome. Mm-hmm. Just send us the feedback. Yeah, if send you will, us email we'll, we'll if you want to go. We'll organize it, and then if we have too many people, then we will do we'll do two days. Um or we'll do two out, like we'll we'll divide it across the, the yeah. same day. We can mm-hmm. we can break it up. I'll talk for hours. I don't care. Yeah. I mean, you, you all know Is that there a me. bar nearby where we can go and get a drink afterwards? <laughs> we'll find There's an one. Italian restaurant right across the street and get a they drink there. Serve alcohol. They serve yes. wine and okay. beer. Actually, they just serve beer. There you go. Cool. It's a date. All right. We'll figure that out. So if you do want to give us feedback to let us know if you're interested in going to the Rosicrucian Museum, or if you just want to talk to us. That's cool. Um, you <laughs> yeah. can do so by going to nerdonomy.com and click that talk to us button. Uh, while you're at nerdonomy.com, you can also happen to find our phone number and our address. We have an address we now. We have an address. Well, we have a P.O. box. Right. So we don't do. send any of your like death threats there. They or, won't come to or, or pipe bombs for that or, matter. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, bad idea. Because if it does get there, first of all, one, shame on you. Two, <laughs> scathing indictment of the Postal Service <laughs> and their security <laughs> systems. <laughs> Um, so uh, if you guys do want to go ahead and do that, you can find that information on the website or you can, um, you know, I'll just tell you right now, P.O. Box 26476, San Jose, California, 95159. If you want to leave us a voicemail, you can get a hold of us at 408-844-4946. Charges do apply. I'm sorry. Um, but uh, you guys can also check out our social media. You can find us on Facebook. You can find us on Twitter. You can find us on Instagram. Just search Nerdonomy. You will find us. I promise you that. Um, and also, while you guys are, you know, thinking about talking to us, talk to your friends too. Let them know how awesome this podcast is. Um, and 
all the really cool stuff you learned about Napoleon. Share the education, uh, share what you learned, and, um, you know, hopefully your friends will want to start listening too. Or just give us a review on iTunes. That's cool. Whatever. We appreciate it. And guys, Happy New Year, by the way. Happy New Year. It's right around the corner. That's right. I've got to get my, uh, my. I have a dual combo uh, costume. It's half baby New Year, half old man uh, year. Frightening. Oh, interesting. Yeah. yeah. Can you guess which is on top? I don't want to know. No, I really don't. Oh, fine. <laughs> I would assume the beard. It's actually both. I, I, I did it. I cut beard it and diaper? Yeah, I cut it in half. Okay. Weird. Does it depending so on... it's like a half robe, half yeah. diaper. Yeah. Okay. Really, this it's is a right Eric. This it's is Eric's lazy Sunday outfit. Is what this is. Pretty much. Okay. Yeah. Creepy. Well. Uh, well, I know about you, but I'm going to be spending my January trying to reroute my traffic because of the Super Bowl that's oh, impending. Oh God, I know. Oh, don't, 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 don't even, don't, just don't. Don't even, don't even, don't. No, it's a don't terrible even don't. idea. Just don't. The Niners aren't even going, are they? <laughs> no, but it's happening at our stadium. Yeah. Doesn't matter. People are going to make a killing off of Airbnb. Yeah, sports ball. Uh, it is that time, nerds. So until we meet again, stay nerdy and tune into our next exciting episode. Same nerd time, same nerd channel. Nerdonomy.com. Bye. Au revoir. I swear I grew a beard like that once. Un café au lait, s'il vous plaît? That doesn't make any sense and that's weird. Why isn't the TARDIS translate working? I didn't do it. I didn't do it. What?